All right. Good evening, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. We um, are, I don't know, it, it used to be about the middle of lesson six, but uh, like I said, I've kind of combined these two into one whole lesson. So we're going to go through the, the humiliation of Jesus and then the exaltation. And so where we left off last time was we just finished the section on the ministry of Jesus on page 35, um, kind of went through the uh, a brief map of the area of Israel for Jesus' ministry. Um, and tonight we are going to pick up and hopefully get through the passion of Jesus. Um, so if you got a Bible, we're, we're going to be just kind of reading through larger chunks of Matthew's gospel. Um, if not, you can just listen in, maybe pull it up on your phone or something if you have it. Um, otherwise, uh, I'll, I'll just be reading them. And then there's, there's some notes. I'm not going to read through all of them. But I would just point out um, to you that in your, your notes, there, there's a little, um, it's kind of broken down into different sections, um, and there's just a little more information there. So we're not going to stop and talk about every single one, um, but would encourage you to take a look at those as you have the opportunity. Then as we go through, um, I'm actually going to show you some pictures, kind of as we started doing last week, um, some pictures as they pertain to the certain areas through the passion of Jesus. So... We're in Matthew chapter 26. We're going to begin there with four, uh, verse 14. Judas agrees to betray Jesus. There's a little intro paragraph there on page 35. And the one thing that I just want to point out is, um, I, I hear this kind of commonly misused. When we talk about the passion of Jesus, um, I, you know, we talk about somebody who has passion for something. We mean they're really into it. Um, they're really motivated by it. They're really in love with something. They're passionate about something. When we talk about the passion of Jesus, it, it's true. Yes, Jesus is, is all in on his suffering and death. Um, Jesus is doing this because he's head over heels in love with you. All of that is true. But when we talk about the passion of Jesus, what we mean is it's taking that from the Latin word, um, Passum, which means, which means suffering. So when we talk about the passion of Jesus, we're talking about the events that surround his suffering and his death. Okay, that's what we mean by the passion. Or I think I've referenced it already, the, the Mel Gibson movie, the, the Passion of the Christ. Um, it's talking about the events of his suffering and death. Okay, so Matthew 26. Um, Verse 14, Judas agrees to betray Jesus. Then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Um, if you take a look in your notes, there's just a little bit uh, of background information. It's amazing how many things are fulfilled by Jesus and in the New Testament, specifically surrounding his passion. Um, the events that are predicted in the Old Testament, some that you would never even think of. And this is one, the very price at which Jesus is betrayed for is something that is foreshadowed in the Old Testament. And there's a reference to it there um, in your notes, a little background from the book of Zechariah. Uh, the next section on the Lord's Supper, verse 17, on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Jesus replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. 
So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When the evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus answered, yes, it is you. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew, anew with you in my father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Um, we're not going to spend a lot of time here on the Lord's Supper just simply because we are going to look at it. It's got its, got its own lesson. And I got to look here. Um, in the, the new lesson, it's going to be lesson 10, okay? So we're just a couple lessons away from that. Um, and for those of you who are planning on uh, becoming members, joining our congregation, um, as soon as we finish that lesson on Holy Communion, um, we, we invite you to come up and to partake of it here. So that's what we're working towards, right? So we're getting there um, week by week. So we'll talk more about the, the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, and then if you've got questions about that, Write them down. Um, we'll, we'll come back to it. Okay, we're going to have a whole lesson on, on the Lord's Supper. Um, the next section, Jesus predicts Peter's denial. Uh, then Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Um, it, it's amazing here. We're, we are about to see Jesus in as human as, 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 as Jesus is. Jesus is true man. He's fully human. We know that. We confess that. But in his passion, in his suffering, we are going to see just how human Jesus really is. And yet, even throughout this process, what I think is so amazing is we still get little glimpses of Jesus' divinity, that he knows full well what lies ahead of him that he knows what he's about to endure. He knows what's going to happen. He knows who is going to betray him. He knows who is going to abandon him. He knows who is going to arrest him. He knows who is going to betray him. He knows all of these things. Um, he knows that Peter is going to deny him. He knows all of these things. Um, and, and it's what, what makes that I think even more amazing is Jesus doesn't go into this blind. He wasn't uninformed as to what it meant to be the world's savior. It wasn't as though Jesus didn't know how painful, how much it would cost to redeem the world from sin. Um, and then he just kind of got ambushed. Um, and, and then it was too late to back out. Jesus knew full well everything that was about to happen. And he still 
driven by his love for you, for me, for the world, he still goes forward, right? He still goes forward to suffer and die, even for the ones who abandoned him, even for the ones who betrayed him, even for the ones who denied him. And here I'm not just talking about Peter and Judas and the disciples, but you and me too, right? Um, so it's amazing to kind of see that those glimpses shine through from time to time, right? All right, next section. Here's, I got some pictures coming up here. Gethsemane. Uh, if you got any questions, just stop me. Just please let me know. Otherwise, I'm just going to kind of keep going through. It's a little longer section. So uh, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. That's James and John. Um, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not I will, uh, as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Um, an, an amazing section, again, where we see this humanity of Jesus knowing full well what it is that he's about to endure. Um, he asks his father if there is any other way for the plan of salvation to be accomplished. Um, and the, the word that he uses there, um, uh, this cup, right? Um, that's a, it's a rhetorical or a... a a way of, uh, it's, it's called metonymy. It's where you say one thing clearly implying something else, right? So when Jesus says, uh, do I have to drink this cup? He's not talking about a literal cup. Um, he's talking about his suffering and death. Um, he's talking about his passion. And the reason why the word cup is used, there's a couple explanations. There's two really. Um, one is that, that drinking a cup of poison was a common way um, in the ancient world for someone to be executed or for you to kill someone. So to drink the cup of death was kind of a common way to talk about that, right? Um, or you, you, um, you, you hear in the Old Testament, right, this picture of God pouring out his wrath, right? This almost says it's like this liquid form, right? And so you envision this is what Jesus is drinking, right down to the final drop. He's consuming, he's drinking, he's taking into his own body the full wrath of God. Another one, which probably isn't the reason, but it's just kind of an in interesting historical point. Um, some people use this because they made the connection that when people were in pain, notably um, when people were suffering and beaten, that they, they kind of resembled someone who also was drunk. So somebody who had been drinking a lot and somebody who had just gotten done with a fight walked away from the bar and walked away from a fight and looked very similar. 
Um, so drinking the cup, um, some people kind of use that as a, an analogy for, um, you know, one or both of those things. So um, I think probably the, the former are probably more um, a reason for that, but just so you understand why, why Jesus uses that term. Um, as far as some of the, the pictures go of, of Gethsemane, here um, is the, the actual Garden of Gethsemane. So this is one of those places where we know where it is on the slopes there of the, the Mount of Olives just outside of Jerusalem. Um, and what's interesting is that the trees that are there, some of them are, are over 2,000 years old. So I, again, I'm not going to point out and say, this is the tree that Jesus prayed at, or this is where the disciples were, but this is the Garden of Gethsemane. It's still there, um, and some of these trees have lasted um, since that time. Um, really kind of an amazing place um, as you, you walk through there. You see there's a chapel there in the background. Um, we got to go in there and, and observe uh, a mass that was taking place. Um, but pretty amazing just to kind of walk around um, and see this area to, to spend some time in prayer. Um, just like everything else, Jesus is the model prayer too, right? Um, I mean, we, we see Jesus throughout his ministry spend hours and hours in prayer. Um, so the first night, it's, it's, the, it's the evening time. They just had dinner. They're, they're there at the end of the day. Jesus takes his disciples out to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he goes and he prays for an hour. And then he comes back and asks them why they're sleeping. Um, I don't know who would, who would have been able to stay awake. Um, but Jesus prays for an hour. Um, now, I'm not saying that the longer you pray, the better your prayer is. Um, but I think we can see and understand that this is Jesus genuinely spending time um, speaking with and pouring out um, his concerns and his, his fears, so to speak, um, and uh, um, the, the troubles that he's experiencing, right? Um, as he describes it there, um, that uh, he's overwhelmed right? His soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. So, so what do you do at a time like that? You pray, right? You pray. That's a good time to do it. So, so these are pictures of the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, any questions so far? We're on the middle of page 36. Middle of page 36, we are um, making our way through Matthew 26. All right, we'll keep going. Um, next section is Jesus arrested. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward seized Jesus and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. 
All right, um, a lot of interesting things I think in this section. Number one, yes, Judas comes to do exactly what Jesus predicted. Um, and look at the way that Jesus greets him. If I knew that somebody was going to betray me, stab me in the back, um, I don't think that this is the way I would address them as they approached me. Um, this is not a sarcastic friend. Um, Jesus is not saying, hey, what's up, pal? Um, this is a genuine one I love, right? Do what you came for. What is Jesus doing there? Jesus is giving to Judas one more reason not to avoid doing what he's about to do. Jesus knows this is already going to happen. But Jesus is giving him one more re reminder that despite who Judas is and what he's about to do, that Jesus still loves him. Um, and, and in essence, what is Jesus doing? He's calling Judas to repent, right? Um, Jesus is not abandoning Judas, even as Judas is betraying him. Or think about the, the soldiers and all of the people who came. What is Jesus doing for them? He's calling them to repent as well. And how does he do it? Jesus says, think about this for a second. Think about this. You are coming to arrest me with swords and clubs in the middle of the night with an army of soldiers. Why? He says, I've never been in hiding. I've never run away from you. I've taught every single day in public. You knew exactly where to find me every single moment of my life. And he said, what does this tell you? That now you are coming to arrest me in this way. This is what was prophesied in the scriptures. Not only that, but Jesus has right in front of their eyes picked up a man's ear off the ground and put it back on his head right in front of them. And still they go through with this, right? Think about the patience and the love and the compassion that Jesus has even for these men who are betraying him, arresting him, stabbing him in the back. Um, Jesus still wants to see them in heaven. Um, and so he doesn't fight. He doesn't try and, you know, outwit them. Um, he just simply wants them to see that what they're doing is all a part of ultimately God's plan of salvation. Um, so interesting section, no doubt. All right. Um, Jesus before the Sanhedrin. Those who had arrested Jesus, verse 57, Luke 20. 6 verse 57 those who had arrested jesus took him to caiaphas the high priest where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled but peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest he entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome the chief priests and the whole sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against jesus so they could put him to death but they did not find any though many false witnesses came forward finally two came forward and declared this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, 
In the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you. Um, a couple pictures here. Um, these are the, the steps um, there in Jerusalem that lead the court of the high priest. Um, and so these very likely would have been the steps, or at the very least, the path that Jesus walked up to stand on trial here before the Sanhedrin. Um, and the Sanhedrin was kind of the, the, the Jewish court. It was the ruling body in the Jewish culture. Um, it was made up of the high priest, some teachers of the law, Pharisees, Sadducees, all of these kind of important religious people. Um, and what are they looking for? They're looking for a reason to sentence Jesus to die. But here's the problem. The Jews don't have the authority to actually kill someone, to carry out capital punishment. So even, even if they sentence him worthy of death, which they've done, they've accused Jesus, they've found Jesus guilty of the absolute worst crime that can be committed in the Jewish culture, and that is blasphemy, which is claiming to be God. Now, what's interesting to me is a lot of people will point out and say, well, Jesus never actually claimed to be God. Um, this is something that Christians have projected on him. Um, and I say, really? Okay, then ask your Jewish friends why they're not Christians. And the answer that they will give you is not simply because Jesus claimed to be the Christ, simply because he claimed to be the Messiah. They will tell you, we don't have a problem with that. There's been 600 and some odd people throughout the history of Judaism who have claimed to be the Messiah. But they said the reason that we do not believe Jesus, the reason that we are not Christians is because Jesus claimed to be God. That's what we have a problem with. Um, so even your Jewish friends recognize this is what Jesus is claiming to be. To be the Christ, to be the Son of God, is to be God. Okay? Um, and so they recognize that Jesus, in, in, from their perspective, has committed the unforgivable crime. Right? Blasphemy. So now they've got enough in their Jewish court to, to convince the community, to convince the, the Jewish people, look, this guy deserves death. But now they're going to have to take him to the Roman court and actually see if they can get something else to stick. Because that is not going to be enough to convince Pontius Pilate to have Jesus be crucified. Because Pontius Pilate doesn't care who claims to be the Christ. Um, that is not a concern of his, right? So we'll see in a minute. Notice how they change the accusation from Jesus. The one they used to, conv to convict him in the Jewish court to the one they have to ultimately use to convict him in the Roman court. Um, all right. Oh, one other thing. Peter is here. Um, oh, we'll get to that in the next section. Peter disowns Jesus. Okay. Any questions so far? I'm on the bottom of page 36. Matthew 27, verse 69. Now, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. 
I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, though, standing up there, um, standing there, went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them for your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses on himself and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Um, and this, I think, is probably one of my favorite statues um, that is there kind of throughout the Holy Land. Um, it's hard to see, I know, if you're here in person, but um, you've got uh, down there, front center, that's Peter. On the upper left, you can kind of see that's a Roman soldier. Um, to the right is, uh, is a little girl, right? One of these girls who terrified Peter, which I think is just... <laughs> Right? He's, he's afraid of these girls right, who are accusing him of knowing Jesus. And then, of course, up top, you've got the rooster. The rooster right? um, and, and what you can't see is on the faceplate here, um, and I forget the actual um, line. I'll have to see if I can see it on my screen. Um, yeah, non novi illum. Non novi illum. Um, which in Latin is, um, I don't know him, right? So, so there, there is Peter's line, right? Um, I don't know him. I don't know this one that you're, you're talking about. Um, so those steps that I just showed you, um, this statue is that if you walk up those steps to your left, it's up there in kind of the courtyard of where the, the high priest would have been. So this is where... Um, Peter would have, would have gathered. This is where this event would have taken place. And I think it's just kind of an amazing um, tribute to that, that scene. Um, what's that? Oh, I think so. Yeah, uh, Mitzi said, would there have been a Roman soldier there? I think so. Um, I think there would have been Roman soldiers kind of everywhere, right? Um, just ar around the, the territories throughout the Roman Empire, there always would have been a couple soldiers nearby. Correct. But it's still Roman territory. Yeah, right. So it's kind of like, you know, where are you going to find a police officer? Well, you're, hopefully you're going to kind of find them everywhere, right? But you're probably going to find them where you start to hear trouble stir up. And I think this is probably something. Now, I don't know for sure whether there was one there, but I don't think it's out of place to put a Roman soldier there. Um, from the Garden of Gethsemane? Um, yeah. I think it would have definitely been them. Um, but also could have been Roman soldiers. Um, sure. Yeah. Um, with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and elders of the people. So yeah, probably mostly just those, right? But again, I, I think um, even the story of like the centurion at the cross, right? There's always kind of 
there's always kind of a Roman soldier nearby in all of these stories. And eventually they're gonna have to take him to, to Pontius Pilate, which, which is where we're headed next. So, but yeah, good question. All right, um, we're gonna move on next into um, Matthew 27, Judas hangs himself. Early in the morning, so this has gone through now the whole evening, these trials, right? Jesus is going on now probably, you know, um, 24 hours of not sleeping, right? Um, so this is, this is early Friday morning, okay? All the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priests picked up the coins and said, it is against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 silver coins, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded them. So there's another one of those prophecies um, uh, mentioned there, fulfilled from uh, Zechariah and then also Jeremiah. Um, the story of Judas, um, we're going to learn this in better detail in an upcoming lesson when we talk about confession and absolution. And one of the things I, I would say, not I would say, it just it's the truth. One of the things that makes repentance that makes confession unique from a biblical perspective, but I would also say a, a Lutheran perspective, is the fact that, that uh, for example, our small catechism, the, the uh, Martin Luther small catechism that we use to teach our youth, that I still use to teach adults, um, the basics of the Lutheran faith, which is really essentially what we're going through in this class, um, talks about how there, the, that, that confession has two parts. Now, when you and I think of confession, confession really just has one part. What is it? Yeah, you, you confess, right? Here's what I did. I'm guilty. And Judas did that, right? It says he is seized with remorse. I have betrayed innocent blood, he says. There's no doubt that Judas felt sorry, that he was confessing. Um, but, but the Bible is very clear, um, and I think our catechism crystallizes that, that there's a second part to confession. That is not only confessing your sins, but it's also believing and trusting the very thing that, for example, on Sunday morning, I speak to you immediately after you confess your sins, right? The second part of confession is trusting that, that you have God's forgiveness. So Luther would say confession has two parts. The one is that we confess. The second is that we receive the absolution, that we receive the forgiveness that Jesus Christ has won. Judas had the first part. But part of the reason why he hung himself 
is because what? God could never forgive me for this. God will never love me because of what I've done. I'll, there, there is no saving me. And here, of course, is the great irony, right? That Jesus is going to the cross even for Judas. Um, and so this idea that, you know, kind of what's the difference between uh, Judas, for example, and Peter? Because Peter denies Jesus, and he runs outside, and he weeps bitterly. Um, Peter sticks around long enough to hear the absolution. And this is what Jesus gives him when he meets him after the resurrection on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. There's the miraculous fish, and Jesus um, asks Peter, do you love me? Go feed my sheep, right? That interaction that he has. Um, so, so, like I said, we're going to talk about this more in an upcoming lesson, but I would encourage you, um, you know, um, if you are feeling guilty, if you are struggling with sin, if you are wrestling with guilt, confess those sins. Um, confess them to your spouse. Find a, a good Christian friend. Um, find a, a pastor. Someone who you know is going to respond to your confession with the words that you do not deserve to hear, but so desperately need. And that is, I forgive you in the name of Jesus Christ, right? Um, this is what, what Judas did not want to hang around long enough to hear, unfortunately. Um, and we, 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 we get the impression, I've got it referenced there in your notes, Acts chapter one, we get the impression um, that Judas was not saved, that he did not end up in heaven. Um, this is not me telling you that everybody who commits suicide automatically goes to hell. I'm not saying that. But it sure seems like that was the case here with Judas. Um, and so this is why I'm always in um, You know, if you're carrying around guilt, if you're, you're carrying around the burden of past sins, present sins, whatever it might be, find someone. Yeah, yes, you can confess them to the Lord. You, you, can, you can speak them in your mind. You can pray them, Lord, forgive me, have mercy. But, but the Lord isn't going to part the clouds and, and speak back to you. That's why he's put other Christians in your life. And I would say most notably, that's why he wants you to have a pastor. He wants you to have somebody whose literal job it is every time you confess your sins. I am bound by the divine call that this congregation has given me to tell you I forgive you all your sins, and because I forgive you, Jesus forgives you. Because the forgiveness I'm giving to you is not my forgiveness. It's his forgiveness. Okay? So, I know I say this a lot, and some of you are kind of in this process right now of looking for a church. Um, and I think people all have it all backwards, right? Um, I think instead of looking for a church, what they should be looking for, first and foremost, is a preacher. Someone who is going to give them Jesus on the regular. Um, somebody who is going to give them the goods, so to speak, right? Um, because the church might not be the, the, the greatest, most flashy place you've ever been to. But if there's a pastor there who's going to do that, right, it's worth sticking around for. Okay. Um, we'll talk about that in future lesson too. But um, Judas needed a pastor, right? Um, 
and 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 Peter stuck around long enough to get one, um, and Judas unfortunately did not. Okay. All right. Any questions so far? Anything we've talked about? We're getting near the end. A couple more sections. Yeah. Um, so I, I can't remember directions. The question was, uh, when I was there, um, is there any idea where the field of blood is? Um, there's a pretty good, um, there's a pretty good uh, guess. And it's, it's not because of the name so much as it still is a burial place for essentially Gentiles. Um, and and you know when you, when you and I think of a burial place for people, we think of a cemetery. Well, in the ancient world, they weren't going to dig a hole for every person. Um, it was more times than not, especially when you're dealing with foreigners, Gentiles, outsiders, right? Um, you're not going to go through the whole thing of giving them a plot, giving them a headstone. There probably was a massive hole somewhere outside of town, and this is where all of the people were, were buried. And there still is an area, actually just on the, the the far side of the, um, the the Mount of Olives, where the sea of, or the, see, the, the the Garden of Gethsemane is, up above that is a cemetery, and there there is a section for um, Jewish people. And then if you kind of wind your way around, there's this down in the valley. This is the place where the the Gentiles are buried, and that's the proposed place for the field of blood. So, yeah, another one of those places where I would say. You know, um, very well could have been. Makes sense, fits the area. Tradition has lasted this long, you know, very likely. So, all right, Jesus before Pilate. Um, where are we at? Matthew 27, verse 11. All right. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor, this is Pontius Pilate. Um, asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ, Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate said he was, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. 
Um, I've got it there in your, your notes. Um, even though the Jewish court had, had decided that Jesus was worthy of death, they didn't actually have the authority to execute him. So this is why they have to bring him to Pilate. Um, and this is where kind of having the other gospel accounts of the passion help kind of give us the full, the full story. Um, when you look at the charges, we don't really hear about any additional charges that were brought to Jesus here in Matthew's account. Remember, Matthew is a gospel that is written primarily for a Jewish audience. Um, Matthew has more Old Testament references, I believe, I'll have to double check this, but I think Matthew has more Old Testament references than the other three gospels combined. So Matthew is very heavy on Old Testament, on seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, right? You hear that phrase used a couple times throughout Matthew. Um, but in the other gospels, we hear that what they end up kind of bringing as this charge against Jesus before Pontius Pilate is that Jesus was starting to, to gather for himself a group of insurrectionists. He's planning to take over you, essentially, um, Pilate. And if you've heard about any of the, the miracles that he's done and the amount of people that have been following him, um, then you know he probably has the power to do it. And you got to remember the way that the Roman Empire worked was very kind of similar to the way this is where, uh, for example, we model the United States government, or at least we used to, <laughs> after the, the Roman style of government. And so this is where you get like senators um, and, and, and our judici judicial system, things like that go all the way back to Greek and Roman culture. <clears throat> and what is the goal for really any politician um, in our government today? I don't know that they would all 100% say this, but really the goal is ultimately to make it where? City-wise. Okay, right? Yeah, and, and ultimately, if you, if you aspire to even go beyond the mayor's office, then there's the governor's office. But even beyond that, the goal is always to get back to DC. Whether it's as a senator, a congressman, or the president of the United States, this is the home hub. This is when you know you've made it. This is, these are the major leagues of politicians, right? Um, and it was the same way in the Roman Empire. So the way you started out is you probably were a successful Roman soldier um, and then you came back and then you got into politics. And the first thing that they would do is they would ship you out to Timbuktu to some no name place in the Roman empire and say, if you can manage these people, if you can keep the peace in this territory and continue to extract taxes from them, You'll continue to move your way up. And the way you moved your way up is you started to make your way back home. The goal was to get back to Rome. And so in all of this, what is Pilate's goal? What is the thing that finally gets his attention? Right? Um, verse 24. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting. Now this is going to be problem. If word gets back that I can't manage these Jews, this little nation of Israel, I'm never getting home. This will be the end of my political career. 
The only thing that Pilate is concerned with is keeping the peace, even if it means, okay, fine, you know what? I got to crucify this one guy, then, then everything will go away and that's fine, right? And, and my heart is always torn when it comes to Pontius Pilate. Um, I, I, you know, part of me feels bad for him. Um, you, you see how badly he wanted to let Jesus go. He knew that, there, that this man had done nothing wrong. And yet the reality is he didn't have the guts to do what he knew was right. Um, and so isn't it interesting that the only names that we have that have still lasted in the, in the, the creeds of Christianity, other than Jesus Christ, is the Virgin Mary and Pontius Pilate. Um, and some people ask, why, why, why the name? Why include Pontius Pilate in the creed? And what would your guess be? Okay. Okay, Mitzi said because he was responsible. So were the Jews responsible? The Jews were responsible. Were the Romans responsible? Sure, sure. No, my, my point is just simply, I, I, I don't want us all to, to think, and I'm not suggesting that this is what you were saying, but well, Pont, you know, because I think one of the questions at the end of this lesson is, um, agree or disagree, the Jews were responsible for Jesus' crucifixion. And there's always this argument, right? Um, so Jewish people will say, no, it was the Romans. So they, they try and like blame the Roman Catholic Church. You're the ones, right, who put Jesus, and the Roman Catholic Church will blame the Jews. They'll say, no, you're the ones who brought him to, to Pontius Pilate. And so there's this battle. Who really is responsible for Jesus' death? Um, and, and the answer is yes. But ultimately also, no. Why? Who's responsible for Jesus' crucifixion? Okay, true, all of us, right? But even beyond that, finish the sentence. Jesus dies because... This was God's plan of salvation. This is how God rescues a world of sinners. Um, it, it, and, I, and I think that's important because it, it reminds us, and, and this was an eye-opener for me a number of years ago. We had, we had a, a lady in our congregation, um, and, and she, she was raised in a different branch of Christianity. I won't tell you one. Maybe you can guess when I tell you the story, but she sent me one of the coolest texts I think I've probably ever gotten in my ministry. And she said, you know what? She said, I've been a Christian my whole life, um, but, but, but not a Lutheran for very long. And she said, one of the things that you've made abundantly clear to me Sunday after Sunday is that Jesus died for me, not just because of me. Meaning again, what is the cause? for Jesus being on the cross. Yes, on the one hand, we can say Jesus is there because of my sins, right? That's true enough. But the reality is no one forces Jesus there. No one forced this to be God the Father's plan. The reason that Jesus is there, the reason that this is God the Father's plan is because of grace, because of love, because of his desire to not see us condemned, but to see us forgiven, saved, and set free, right? So Jesus dies for you in your place, in your stead, not just because of you, right? Um, and so I think the reason that Pontius Pilate is in there 
is the same reason why Caesar Augustus is mentioned at the beginning of Jesus' birth, because it reminds us that the whole of Christian theology is rooted in history. That this is not a religion of, you know, a, a sevenfold path to enlightenment. Um, that whether or not, regardless of what you think of Buddha, um, you know, doesn't matter if he was real, if he actually lived. The, the question is just, do you think these teachings are right? Whether or not he actually was a, a real person in history doesn't matter, right? The historicity, for example, of Eastern religions doesn't really matter. Um, but the history of Christianity is, is, is what gives it so much of its reliability, its trustworthiness, right? And so Jesus was crucified, not just because this is part of the Christian story, but because this is part of history, right? This is a part um, of Jesus at a real time, in a real place, under a real verifiable Roman governor being sentenced to die. Um, and so, I, you know, I, that's just one of those kind of glimpses we have in the creed that reminds us, this is history. We're talking about salvation history. Okay. Uh, I think so. I, I think the main reason why Pontius Pilate is referenced in the creed is to tie it to history. It's to remind us that these are not just the theological points of Christianity, um, that these are not just statements of what we believe, but, but, but these are statements of the historical facts that actually took place in real time in history. And because of these real time historical facts, um, our salvation is secure and has been accomplished. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the last phrase I, I think is really interesting there um, is verse 25. Um, Pilate washes his hands, which of course does nothing, right? He says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. Well, no, you're not, because you're still the only one who has the authority to say yes or no. Uh, but this maybe soothes his own conscience a little bit. Um, he says, it's your responsibility. And all the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. My goodness, what a, what a statement, Right? It uh, makes me think of two things. Number one, it goes back to um, Exodus 34. Um, it goes back to the, the Ten Commandments. Um, it goes back to this, this responsibility that the Lord set out for the people of Israel, that it is, and it's one that we today as Christians should still hold in highest regard, that the Lord gives you children for the primary purpose of one day giving them back to him, of ra raising and training your children up in the way of the Lord so that when they leave this life, they are given back to their Lord, right? Um, and so you read through the Exodus, you read through Deuteronomy, and what is the Lord and what is Moses constantly telling the people of Israel? Impress these truths upon your children, right? Why? Because, the Lord says, I am a jealous God, punishing the sins of the children to the, uh, uh, punishing the, the, chil uh, the sins of the fathers, or punishing the sins of the children 
for the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, the point of this is not to say that the Lord is going to hold you accountable for something your great-grandfather did 100 years ago. But the point of it is to say what? When the sin of not training up and raising my children in the faith, um, that is going to be something that not only am I going to have to suffer the consequences of, but they will too. Why is it that, that for example, the, the percentage of, of Christians in the world, percentage of, well, that's not really true, percentage of Christians in, in, in America, let's just say that, is decreasing. It's not because the message has changed. It's not because it's less and less believable than it was 50 years ago. It's not because the word of God no longer works. It's because parents stop teaching their children the precious truths of scripture. And so what happens? Um, my generation, the millennials, we were kind of the beginning of the end. Um, my generation suffered through the, the largest amount of divorce in the country. Um, and, and, and because of that, you've got broken homes. Um, and I've dealt with this in church life long enough that when a family falls apart, one of the first casualties is they stop coming to church. I'm not saying all the time, but a lot of times. And why is that? Because the church is a place where they were a family. Everyone knew them as a family unit. And so it becomes a very convenient excuse to say, well, you know, we're not married anymore. So, um, you know, we don't want to show up. We don't want to face the awkward questions. We don't want to talk about it. So we just stop going to church. Well, then what happens to the kids, right? They stop going to church. And when they grow up outside the faith, guess what they don't do when they have kids? They don't take them to church because they don't remember going to church. And guess what happens when those kids have kids? Now they know nothing of Christianity. That's all it takes is one generation. And now we're getting to almost into the third generation um, in our country. And so we wonder why Christianity is drastically declining. That's why. Um, I think that's a, it's, it's one of the big reasons why I would say, right? So this, is, this, this makes me think of, of this, right? The, these people who are, are standing there saying, let his blood be on us, and not just on us, right? You, you can picture them picking up their kids and say, let the guilt of this man's blood be poured over these little kids' head. What a terrifying thing to say. And yet it also makes me think, and this is where it gets really beautiful, look ahead to Acts chapter 2. And this is the story of Pentecost, which we're going to look at in our next lesson. Um, the story of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And Peter is there after he's accused of being drunk and talking in different languages. And Peter gives his amazing, you see how drastically things have changed. He's terrified of a little girl accusing him that he knows Jesus. And now he's standing up in front of a crowd of thousands and thousands of people in Jerusalem, 50 days removed from these very events. And Peter... Um, accuses this crowd, you killed the son of God. And we're told they're cut to the heart. And they say, what do we do? And Peter says, what? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. This promise is for you and for your children. Right? 
So, so this beautiful kind of picture of the, the law, the, the wrath of God that comes down through the generations, but also this grace, this grace that is poured out, grace that so often comes from grandparents to parents, from parents to children, from children to their children. Um, and so uh, just kind of makes me think of that, right? This is, this is not a throwaway line. Um, let his blood be on us and on our children. So, all right. Um, let's see. We got a couple more sections. We can finish this up, I think. Um, can't we? Where are we at? Yeah. Yes, we're... Uh, the soldiers mocked Jesus. Verse 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, twisted together a, a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. All right, and here's the crucifixion. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. Then they had crucified him. They divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him, he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Um, there is an area just outside of Jerusalem that is called um, Golgotha. Um, and in the, next, uh, in the next section of this lesson, when we get into the resurrection, we're going to look at some pictures from a place that is known as the Garden Tomb. And the Garden Tomb is, one of, is the proposed uh, place of Jesus' burial. Um, now, again, is it actually the place? Probably not. Um, but what's interesting is this place... Um, is maybe only three, four, five hundred yards away from that, that tomb. And if you remember the hurry that the people had in taking down Jesus' body and getting it in the tomb, the Sabbath day was approaching. They didn't have much time. Um, and this place is called um, uh, Golgotha, the, the place of the skull. And you can kind of see, um, I think there is a way... Um, if I can draw, yeah, draw. The eyes are kind of right here. Kind of at an angle, but um, the nose is here. And then you've got some of the teeth, right? 
Um, and, and if you're looking at this thing straight on, um, it very much looks like a skeleton. It's, it's kind of eerie. And, and I, again, I think, you know, we, we talk about how Jesus was kind of crucified up on a hill, but the reality is, remember, crucifixion was done not just to punish the criminal. It was also done to dissuade everyone else from doing something similar. It was as public of an execution as there could be. Um, and so right beyond this, um, in this area over here, is one of the main roads that lead into and out of Jerusalem. And so if you were entering into the city of Jerusalem, this is the place that you would have walked by. And anybody who was coming into Jerusalem, this is what the Romans wanted you to know. This is what happens when you break the rules. And so I think a lot of times, we, again, we do artwork and we see Jesus pictured like 20 feet up in the air, right? The reality is that Jesus was probably relatively close to eye level, right? Because it was meant to be as much a public shame and humiliation as anything. And to put somebody way up and removed from people would have lessened the shame, right? Um, and so I think this makes sense. It's a little different, I think, than most people picture it where Golgotha, the place of the skull, would have been in the background and the cross here would have been planted in front of this, right? With this kind of in the, in the, in the background behind it. So again, again, I'm not saying this is it, but it makes sense. It, it could be, it fits, right? For a lot of reasons, so, all right. Yeah, and, and again, Anytime you're, you're going up to Jerusalem, you're, you're, kind, of up, you're kind of up on a hill. And, and there was. The, the road that I showed you there to the right, it goes down. This, this is up on a hill. Um, and, the, you know, I think this little kind of hill behind it, you know, could have just been kind of this is where it got its name from. Um, so, um, interesting, I think. So. All right. Okay, uh, last section, um, two more, um, the death of Jesus. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over the whole land. About the ninth hour, that's three o'clock, right? So you figure um, the, uh, the first hour um, is going to be um, six in the morning, right? The sixth hour is noon, the ninth hour is this kind of goes the, the three watches of the night um, that goes throughout these. So we're at three o'clock from sixth hour until the ninth hour. That's 12 to three, Friday afternoon. Darkness came over the whole land. About three o'clock, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to, to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. 
When the centurion and those with him were guarding, who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Um, so on the bottom of page 37, there's just a couple of instances there where we see again, just how many Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled from, from, from the vinegar that's given to Jesus to them casting lots for his clothing to the words that Jesus speaks, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All of that is, is prophesied there um, in the Old Testament, okay? Um, and then I, the last bullet, bullet point there, um, at the moment of Jesus' death, uh, the curtain temple was torn in two. Remember what that separated, the holy place from the most holy place. This is the curtain that separated people from God. And what does it mean now that Jesus has died? He has destroyed that barrier that separates God from mankind, right? Jesus is our access into the Holy of Holies. We have access to God now through Jesus Christ, okay? Um, so kind of a, an amazing thing that took place there, all right? We'll stop there tonight. We'll pick up next time um, with the humiliation described, just a short section, just kind of where else in the Bible does it talk about Jesus' humiliation? Why is this so important? And then we'll get into the exaltation. We're most uh, closely going to look at the, uh, the resurrection. So we'll pick all of that up next week. All right. Good to have all of you. Good to see you. Have a wonderful week.